This episode brought in part by Serverless Guru and made possible by the ever-growing and passionate Serverless community. Whether you're just starting your serverless journey, halfway through migrating your entire legacy system, or are an AWS hero, Serverless Guru can help you migrate, build applications, and train your team on best practices. With a team of front-end, back-end, and full-stack cloud developers, Serverless Guru can get you where you want to be. Hello, and welcome back to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I am your co-host, Josh Proto. And today I am, you know, really honored to have Chris Gong, co-founder of Flopper Am today on the podcast with me. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, you're super, super welcome. And so, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about before we dig deep down into Flopper Am, just what is a Flopper Am? I'd love to hear a little bit about your serverless journey. How did you get exposed to serverless and get exposed to, uh, you know, the world of video games and how did it lead you here? Uh, yep. So Flopram is the name of a YouTube channel I founded with someone else. We basically primarily focus on tutorials on multiplayer game development, primarily serverless with Unreal Engine and AWS. And how I got into it was simply I just wanted to make a multiplayer game one day. So I literally Googled, how do you make a multiplayer game? And there were so many options, but Amazon is very, very aggressive in their marketing. Like if you look up anything related to game development, you'll see like a Google ad or a YouTube ad somewhere for like AWS game tech. So I just dug primarily into AWS and honestly, their documentation wasn't the greatest specifically for their GameLift product. And I'm specifically talking about GameLift since that's what interested me the most at the beginning of my journey, which was how do I just host a Dart server? So I just want multiple people playing the same game together. And with that, I ultimately found GameLift, which is AWS's dedicated server hosting platform. It handles other stuff like matchmaking and scaling for you. But yeah, I got into GameLift and the documentation wasn't great. So through learning and trying to understand this very archaic documentation, I ultimately like kind of formed a community of just people who are trying to understand this as well as other aspects of multiplayer game development, whether it was in Unreal Engine specifically or just with other cloud serverless platforms. And I ultimately just wanted to make a tutorial to just share my knowledge since there wasn't too much about integrating AWS with Unreal Engine specifically. And that's where I am now. I'm just still focusing on that stuff, trying to branch off into other parts of AWS, other parts of Unreal Engine, as well as other game engines and other cloud platforms. Fantastic. Great to know. You know, a question I have immediately is, you know, what made you choose to go with Unreal Engine? Is it just sort of, or Unreal Engine? Is that just because, uh, does AWS GameLift have good compatibility with it? Is it just because I know, I know Unreal is very popular. You know, way back in the day, I messed around with Unreal and Unity for, you know, just some fun side projects and things I imagine have changed a lot since then. But I'd love to hear, like, how did you end up sort of making the choices that you did? Yeah, that's a great question. So compatibility wise, there wasn't too much issues. Uh, GameLift and AWS is compatible with both engines fairly, fairly well. But I did start off from a Unity background. That's what I primarily started learning game development with like way back in the day. I used to watch like a YouTuber called Brackies now. Unfortunately, he kind of stopped doing YouTube to pursue other things. But when it came time to make a multiplayer game, I know 
was and still is working on kind of their multiplayer system and still is in preview and the, the learning documentation and resources weren't great for it. So I went on to Unreal Engine just to check it out and they had a lot of their multiplayer system kind of like done already. Like they had, you know, replication done. They had TCP, WebSockets, HTTP, all that good stuff kind of all done already. So I just went with that and the documentation was great too. And so was the community. That's basically, there's no other reason. Kind of, it was just the second choice and it worked out. Totally, definitely. Yeah, I know. Certainly if sometimes if it's not broke, you know, no need to break it or reinvent the wheel, especially with these AWS services, like, you know, no need to try to create your own service in order to do something that Amazon already has ready to go. You know, what have been some challenges, I would say, sort of making this work, making a multiplayer game? Uh, Has serverless been something that has, you know, helped you bypass a lot of other challenges that is common in the game development space? You know, how has that been working out for you? Ooh, that's a tough one. Main challenges. I guess for me personally, it was just kind of getting, because I was like new to Unreal Engine before I even started it. So going right into multiplayer game development was not the smartest move probably. But yeah, I think for me, when I first started, I tried making a single player game and converting that to multiplayer. I've learned from my mistakes. That was not the smartest move. If you're going to do multiplayer game development, you got to be for thinking about multiplayer from the start to the end. And in terms of like challenges with serverless, I would say probably into this day, my biggest challenge is just monitoring costs. A lot of things aren't obvious. Luckily, AWS support is pretty kind in terms of refunds, at least for game tech. Not going to speak for other AWS services, but for example, like having quote unquote idle instances. So in GameLift, you have fleets, which are just collection of multiple instances grouped together, you know, at the beginning. And a lot of people don't notice that, you know, if you just have a bunch of instances running, even if they're not running active game sessions, even if no one's like actually on your game playing it, you still get charged for that. And that wasn't something obvious to me. So yeah, those are my biggest challenges, money and just learning. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. And I imagine that, um, these services are, I'm, I'm not as familiar with uh, the GameLift service. And so is this something that has been around for a really long time? You know, in the world of serverless, you know, Lambda has only been released since like 2016. So it's a very new thing. And I, I really was not as familiar with AWS GameLift until I was exposed to a Flopper Am and a lot of the work that you and your channel is doing. So it's been something, you know, I've, I've had some time to look at, but I am not following as much with, you know, what's going on, what new features they're planning. Do you get any extra insight? Like I imagine, uh, you know, I don't know too many other people who are sort of using GameLift as much as, as you and Flopper am. Uh, I imagine you get to have, a, you know, some good conversations with some of the AWS people. <laughs> I do get to have good conversations, but I don't know, honestly, how much I'm allowed to say. I guess I can say they are working on revamping their GameSparks product, which is basically kind of like, it's more similar to Microsoft PlayFab and even kind of comparable to Steam and Epic Online Services, where AWS is good for mostly the hosting because, well, I mean, they do it for you. They do the scaling. But in terms of like the stuff that people quote unquote really care about, like the client-based services, so like logging in uh, leaderboards, maybe parties, chat. I know GameLift has matchmaking, but that would also fall under this category as well. But that stuff, 
can be implemented with AWS, like Lambda, DynamoDB, like if you use an array of services. But the nice thing about like PlayFab, Steam, and these other client service backend platforms is they kind of collectively jumble them together already. So it's kind of like a plug and play solution, almost not quite. You obviously have to tinker with some configuration settings depending on your game. But GameSparks is basically AWS's version of that, and they're working on that. Okay, super cool. Yeah, thanks for giving us some insight and that sort of thing. Now, do you think you would be as sort of into serverless and deep in sort of the serverless world if it wasn't for, you know, this goal to create a a multiplayer game? That is a, I'm going to say probably yes, because at my work, so I work for a healthcare company and we do a lot of things on our own servers, but now we're moving things to the cloud and serverless. And the main reason for that is honestly just cost. So I think eventually I would have dived deep into this world anyway, because the chances of me getting my own hardware, my own servers, and like setting things up manually would have been very unlikely. For sure. Definitely understood. One of the things I'm always fascinated by about, you know, about games and like games and technology and games around, you know, really AWS is sort of, you know, at least personally, I'm more willing to learn more about services and I've watched your uh, your tutorial and I really enjoyed you know I, I don't I don't think I've ever been more into thinking about my uh, cognito authentication tokens and how I need to make sure they expire more than when I was listening to the tutorial and thinking about like the impl- implications of uh, that happening in the context of a multiplayer game and so do you think like there's really interesting opportunities for like maybe education around like these sort of platforms like using games as you know, just sort of as a, as a framework for how to implement certain technologies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even someone on my Discord server gave an idea, I don't know if we'll actually get to it, but of like making a game to teach game development principles. And I mean, I think we're seeing it now. I remember on Facebook, like I saw a game that like taught electronics principles, kind of like, it was like a wiring puzzle game. I think it was literally called Puzzletronics. You might've even seen it yourself, but it was kind of like, you would literally rearrange like the circuit, the parts in a circuit so that it would work. But I think that's slowly going to morph into game development, really just anything in life in general, teaching serverless, all of that. I think, I think we're definitely going to get there because I mean, if it's playing a game versus reading to learn something, most people are going to choose playing the game. Completely. Definitely that path of least resistance. And there's so many things like vying for our time nowadays i think uh, you know i'm even more distracted now that you know i'm working from home mostly in my in my job so you know there's always like house things that i have to do and uh, i've been able to unfortunately you know i like to like to game a bit as my own like recreation been able to game less but if i was able to you know play and learn something really really fun and valuable at the same time then you know i'd love to do it there's definitely opportunities there but you said you game less now because you work from home, I found maybe not for myself, but for a lot of people I know, it's actually quite the opposite. I have ended up gaming less because uh, for me, I think it's interesting because I have a, I have more time and because I have some more time, I'm able to do just, uh, I have some other hobbies that I do. I'm also a singer and uh, like an amateur jeweler. So uh, I've just been like carving a bunch of gemstones lately and that sort of thing. But I will, you know, pop open my steam every now and then late at night and, uh, you know, play something fun. Would you say that the pandemic has kind of 
amplified your performance or efficiency in working on your non-primary job responsibilities like the singing, the jewelering? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think I have really been able to take those things up an extra level. And I've even been able to do more performances just because uh, there's a lot of Zoom performances going on and it's sometimes easier to sort of orchestrate all of the logistics in that sort of, in that sense. Though in that sort of way, it's, you know, it's still like a mode of a mode of fun or a mode of play, I would say, for me to experiment with these with these other areas that I am very passionate about, similar to gaming and similar to, uh, you know, my passions I have for serverless. So it is interesting to see how, like, how I, I'm choosing to spend my time and how it is sort of enriching everything that I do at the same time. Yeah, I can definitely relate because ever since the pandemic, I've at least in my opinion, just because you removed the commute, I've been able to focus more time on Flopram just because, again, get rid of the commute, but not just that, giving extra time, but also, you know, I feel less tired or I would feel more tired coming from work from a drive home. Now, without that, I feel more alert, more awake, and I'm able to, you know, get more stuff done. Completely. And one thing I'm interested in in knowing about is... You know, so Flopperum, like, you know, has, I would say, you know, kind of like an extensive YouTube channel. And like, what was the purpose to, you know, have such a heavy like YouTube presence and and that sort of thing? Like, was that a decision that sort of came by necessity of like, you know, this is an easy way to show tutorials and show what's happening? Because like, I know, you know, like, Let's Play is like such a huge phenomena, like on YouTube. So it seems like you want to go where the fish are and you want to go where the people are in order to communicate. Was there anything else besides sort of that? market driving factor? Yeah. So at the beginning, it was mainly a market driving factor. I looked up to YouTube and I still do. I look up to YouTubers like Danny and like Sam Hogan. I like the idea of kind of these quote unquote devlogs where you make a game and then you make a video on how you made the game, but also like make it entertaining. We ultimately did that with our quote unquote Fortnite remake, which not that great, but more proud of the video than the actual game. Because the actual game was pretty messy. But after that, I started just doing the tutorials more. And I just like doing that. And I like the community that we grew with that. And also, I was always just kind of interested in learning too. So I just wanted to couple that along with the YouTube. I started like live streaming development earlier this year, kind of at the beginning, in terms of just me learning about this stuff. Because even though I, I tackled AWS and GameLift early on last year, I wanted to go back and kind of remake a more full tutorial covering like the not so obvious stuff. Because when it comes to game tech in AWS, nothing's really that obvious. So I ultimately just live streamed my learning process and kind of converted that afterwards into a full length tutorial. No, and I imagine as you know, these the services change to get updated, there's sort of like a continuous level of like tutorials that can be made. And there's always something, you know, as an educator myself in certain areas, I'm always thinking like, oh, I could explain this better Uh, down the road. And, you know, when I think of like games and game development, it's such like an amorphous thing as far as like what is like the going from like code to like user end experience. And like, how do you architect for like a certain set of feelings that you want someone to have from like your code and from the interactions they're having? I don't know. I'm sort of blown away by by that sort of phenomena that happens from when like building a game to actually playing it early on, like, you know, I think like 
three or four years ago, I was building like uh, Alexa skill games just for myself that were like based off of like sort of my meager attempt to make like a D&D experience in like Alexa, just like go here, you see this, then do that. And it's like, for me, it was a very different experience between like building out the schemas and building out sort of the paths of actions to the the full the experience I would have later when I was playing. You get like a similar experience, like building the code and like making the game work as you do like getting to play it. I guess it goes to a bigger question of like, do you play your own games? Yeah, absolutely. I think building a game is just like playing a game. I mean, there's a destination, there's hoops you have to jump over to get to that destination. I think it's just as rewarding. I actually think that is the best part, like kind of testing your game and finding out like the the bugs. So like the first run of the Fortnite clone we made when we tested it, I still remember like we hosted on AWS and then we got a bunch of people to play together, join the same server. And there was like a movement glitch. It was like the clients all like kind of sense this lag. And the reason for that, it was a replication issue. So in multiplayer development, there's this concept of replication in games with an authoritative server model. So on AWS, since our game's hosted there, we have the game server as the authoritative source of truth. So like whatever is happening on this simulation of this instance of a game, that's what gets kind of replicated to the clients connected to that server. And what I didn't realize was at the beginning of my development of this Fortnite clone, there was... I didn't have movement replication configured. So the client speed always conflicted with the server's interpretation of that of that client speed. So like the client kept thinking it was going this speed, but the server never even realized it was moving. So stuff like that. But yeah, just finding out those bugs and trying to debug them, that's kind of what I like when it comes about the art, so to speak, of game development. No, fantastic. Thank you for answering that. I think that's always like the one of the most difficult questions of like asking someone who is who is a creator and what it means to like be a creator of something that, you know, other people, you know, love to love to consume or participate in. It's always an interesting balance to see like who enjoys what. Because I have a lot of conversations with with developers and architects and, you know, technology leaders, and it's like, you know, there's people who really enjoy doing the development and the coding and sort of all the knowledge and their perspective on serverless or the industry sort of comes, you know, because of that. But what they really love is just like solving the development problems. Then there's others that are on the opposite side of the spectrum. So it's, uh, you know, really good to hear your take and hear your, your opinions on, you know, where you sort of, you know, get your biggest inspiration from in the process. Yeah, I completely understand that. I mean, I might as well rebound the question on to you. I mean, when it comes to any kind of development, what do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy the output or the process or kind of a mix of both? You know, for me as someone who, you know, most of the time I'm not the uh, person solving like the day-by-day problems on the development side. I'm really into the process of the whole of the whole thing. Like how do you support teams, enterprise teams that have these that have these technological problems, that have these business problems, whose customers are having these these life problems? How do you give them a solution using technology? And you know, the serverless technology is simply one of my opinions. I'd say sort of like the best tool for the job in many cases. And you know, me and the team that I work with, we just specialize in being able to fix really crunchy, chewy 
business problems, life problems with serverless. And I think that's what brings me the most joy. So, you know, regardless of what it is, I just really love solving those problems. Gotcha. So would you describe yourself as a solutions architect? You know, you know, potentially I would describe myself more along that than someone who is maybe more on the, you know, specifically like, like DevOps or something. I also do a lot of work organizing teams and organizing team resources and having a lot doing like, you know, there's a level of project management, but I would also say like problems architecture of, you know, what are our needs and what are the problems that keep coming up and making sure everyone has enough resources to complete that. Even if I'm not the one doing it myself, empowering others to make sure they have the ability, ability to do it and can, uh, you know, there's a community and a set of relationships and a culture that fosters that collaboration. And not just between like my own team, but have that be the case between like the team and the client at the same time, which can be really challenging. Well, I just want to highlight that what you do is very important. I mean, just from the developer perspective, like going into like game tech, I don't think I would have been able to learn as much as I did if those kinds of people, those solution architects didn't reach out to me from AWS and kind of give me that helping hand. So definitely big kudos to you. And I'm sure the community you support has already told you that, but yeah, I just want to remind you of that, that you're doing good work. Thank you. Thank you. I definitely appreciate it. Definitely appreciate it. And I definitely love, uh, you know, getting to do what we do here at, uh, you know, at Talking Serverless and just sort of get the perspectives from people who, you know, we think are doing really, really interesting, very, uh, you know, noteworthy things in the world of serverless and getting to pick their brains on how did you get to where you are? I'm always interested in the journey and the process of that. And then seeing through people's journeys to serverless and their mastery of a certain or expertise in a certain area, you know, what they're bringing with them throughout. Because I think those things is what makes uh, us as sort of individuals very, very potent in the industry and allows us to, to see the innovation and to sort of create the next couple steps in serverless. I was just going to ask, you know, if you had uh, some ideas around where you thought the the industry was going, like particularly serverless, maybe with uh, with gaming, with cloud gaming, or like cloud enabled gaming in that sort of way. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Ah, uh, great question. Yep, I was just about to hit this. So, with the game industry, I think the next big thing. I mean, we're already kind of talking about this, but I think. Maybe we're, we're going to see more of the impact of this further down the road. I think uh, cloud gaming, so like gaming on demand, game streaming. So Google's already doing this with Stadia. Now Amazon's in it with Luna. Kind of like these Netflix slash Hulu platforms for gaming. I think, you know, this could be the big thing because, I mean, you always have like people who can't afford these big rich resource intensive computers with crazy CPUs and GPUs and RAM, but they want to play the cool graphics heavy games that, you know, you need these kinds of PCs for. So, and now you can, but the thing is the next step is getting the more popular games on the Stadia and Luna platforms. I think if they can get the big games that everyone views and streams on Twitch, onto those platforms, then I really do think Luna and Stadia are going to be the things that take off. And then we're going to see more platforms just like those in the cloud gaming space kind of appear. I don't know if you've heard of Stadia or Luna or 
cloud gaming in general? I've heard of Stadia before, and I personally subscribe to a service called Shadow.Tech. I think they're based out of the UK. Are you familiar with Shadow? I'm not. Shadow is really awesome because recently, I think the beginning of the year, last year, end of last year, I had this problem where it's like, you know, I have like a, I had like a 2011 MacBook Air and I'm like, I really would love to play something. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, I'd love, really love to play anything on this computer. And I was looking at making an investment in like a gaming laptop, but, you know, I was going to drop like quite a lot of money in order to do that. But I found this, uh, this service called Shadow. And for now, I think it's like, $12 a month, they basically give you like a Windows virtual machine that hits like 60 FPS and has like a pretty intensive graphics card hooked up to it. And so I just pay like a monthly fee just to basically access this uh, this machine that I get to play all these Windows games off of like through my Steam account. So I can buy the games off of Steam or just have them hosted on or download them to that computer that exists. And then I can just play them like I bought that machine myself. And it's just like really lowered the bar to entry in order just to, you know, play something like a couple hours a day. Or when I first got it, I was playing it a ton. And then I realized that I had to lower my bandwidth settings because I chewed through my uh, like terabyte that Comcast gave me. And that was, uh, that was a problem. That was an interesting situation. That was an interesting phone call. Uh, they were very interested to see what I was doing. That was chewing up <laughs> like a terabyte through of uh, data. But that, that's what Shadow is. And that's like, I think my closest connection to, to like gaming on demand or sort of this new era. So how much does Shadow cost? And how's like the performance slash latency of it? I'm just wondering in relative to like Stadia and Luna and other platforms. Sure. So it used to be like $25 a month. And now I think they have like a 1199 program and they give you like 250 gigs. I think it's like 10 up to 1080p and you can hit like 60. I think they say it's like you can hit 60 FPS with uh, pretty much anything that's like set to their graphic settings. I forget what their graphic settings are, but they have like two other premier programs that I think you can, uh, that's like up to 4k resolution and supports like 4k resolution. And that I think it like there's three different tiers and increases $10 each time. I'm interested to see how it compares to Stadia. I, I was stopped considering Stadia once I found Shadow because I didn't sort of want to buy games that were like locked into their platform and they didn't really have the things I was interested in playing. While with this, I can sort of like just buy them in my Steam library and I own them for as long as Steam lets me rather than the Stadia sort of platform. I haven't heard about Luna. Uh, how it is, is it pretty much the same thing as Stadia or how different is it? Yeah, it's it's pretty much the same. Um, I think a big difference between these platforms and like, unless this is the case with Shadow, is Luna and Stadia try to advertise this this controller that they claim, quote unquote, like reduces latency and improves performance if you use it. I don't know if Shadow is something similar to that, but other than that, I believe they're pretty much the same, except, you know, obviously with Shadow. The fact that you can just use your Steam library games is mind-boggling to me to be honest that's that's amazing yeah i don't think i don't think shadow has like a controller that it sort of like says reduces latency they do have like a like a physical i think like a piece of hardware that you can that you can just buy straight up and then it connects to their servers and then it just provides the same service except it's more of like a 
think it's like more of a one-time cost sort of thing. I forget. It seems like they had some troubles for about eight months sort of figuring out like how to handle all the demand that they were getting. They have like physical data centers in the UK and I think maybe now in the United States. And so it seems like they've been having to do a lot of learning and reprioritizing in order to handle just sort of what's going on. Because to me, it's insane when I think about it that uh, I can sort of have access to this hyped up virtual machine for kind of like nothing relative to buying uh, like a brand new state-of-the-art gaming laptop. I mean, even to me, it's, I still don't even understand like how it's even possible because if you've used like remote control applications with GUIs, like for example, TeamViewer is a popular one where you're like, you kind of remote connect into another person's machine. Like it's, it's always super slow. Even if you RDP into a Windows instance and like AWS or Azure or something, it's super slow. So to imagine that you can get 60 frames per second on like a 1080p or 2K, 4K resolution on a game on another machine across the world, I mean, I, I, I still don't understand it. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. It costs about like an entire terabyte worth of data in in a in like a over a couple of days. So I will I'll say that there's definitely a large amount of data usage in order to sort of make that work, which I suppose makes sense. You have to give at some point. Do you think that there's more opportunities going forward in the gaming world and the industry to like utilize serverless? Like, is what you're doing with Floprim right now is this sort of like you know this will sort of happen at scale or is there, is there like a next level of things that you're sort of waiting to happen in order to uh, just to sort of take things to the next level or innovate further in that sort of way? I think there's plenty still out there to explore. Like, I mean, outside of AWS, you have, like I said earlier with PlayFab, I mean, Azure's own serverless platform. You've got Google Cloud now coming into the game. They bought Agones. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Like earlier this year, which is basically kind of like a game server cluster hosting platform that runs on Kubernetes. So all the big players are coming in. Now you got Epic Online Services, which is kind of like not dedicated server hosting, but they do fall in that client service category, trying to rival Steam, except with Epic Online Services, they're going to make it platform and engine independent. Obviously, it's still in beta. Obviously, it's still being worked on. But if they can they can get that done. I think that'd be big. But the thing is, even with like Google Cloud, AWS and Azure and what all, all these other platforms, I mean, they're also like platform independent and engine independent as well. So it's nothing too new, nothing too crazy. But in terms of innovating, I mean, just checking out what else is out there. So not too much on innovation, but just seeing what other companies and solutions have to offer. Completely. I'm really, I'm really interested to see what, what sort of new products and new services are able to get created in that way. What do you think are maybe some of the, some of the benefits that some of these like larger companies that you're talking about could sort of like get, like, do you think there's a lot of like improved developer experience from being able to use these sort of like services like uh, that AWS is offering? I think we've talked a little bit about the like the end user experience benefits of potentially using, you know, something like Stadia or Luna. But as far as like like where does the mix, how do these new technologies marry an improved developer experience and an improved end user experience? What are your thoughts on making that happen? So but I am wanting to talk about like the end user experience as a developer and the gamer. 
So for the gamer, I mean, just the move from like peer-to-peer slash listen servers to dedicated servers is already that huge performance difference. I mean, I mean, I'm sure if I, I come from like Call of Duty, so like even though Call of Duty still has a primarily dominant listen server model, where one of the clients in the game is the quote-unquote host through like some, you know, it's like stun and turn protocols and ice frameworks. Like anyway, that's too complicated for this, but yeah, like. So just moving on to serverless and dedicated servers, that's the big thing. That'll improve latency. And then um, what you have is because you don't have one of the clients as the host, like in a listen server model, you that kind of helps the game to be less prone to like hacking. So that's a big thing. So that's the stuff already done. Moving forward, I know serverless kind of helps with, uh, in terms of latency, also with like regions, like kind of getting people into similar regions into the same games. I mean, that's again, been around, but those are just kind of a few examples of what like serverless and dedicated servers have done already for improving the gaming and user experience. Fantastic. That's definitely good to have your take on that. I want to, I want to circle back around to something about a flop Ram. And I want to ask, you know, what are sort of like the next steps that you have, you know, for the channel, for any projects that you're working on right now, are there additional sort of tutorials that you're hoping to make besides just sort of fleshing out like some old ones or expanding it? I'd love to get a sneak peek into, uh, you know, what's coming next or what, where you'd like to take it. After the kind of after we finished the game lift Unreal Engine integration tutorial series, I've kind of been like bouncing around different cloud platforms and stuff. But I ultimately came back recently to work revisiting the Fortnite clone and trying to make it a more realistic Fortnite clone. I'm not gonna go crazy on it, but I kind of just want to follow things that the original Fortnite game actually did, like in terms of what parts of Unreal Engine did they use. So for example, they use something called the gameplay ability system, which is basically a framework that handles most multiplayer related uh, gameplay features such as client prediction, you know, replication, all that fun stuff. And I do want to also revisit AWS for hosting that game and handling a lot of the client game services. And after that, hopefully I can kind of, you know, make devlogs more entertainment videos out of that. But I also still want to do tutorials. And I think 2021 will be a big thing just because a job situation has kind of been changing throughout the year and it's finally stabilized. So I'm in a good situation that's more comfortable and kind of gives me more free time for 2021. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's great to hear. You know, I definitely am looking forward to seeing how the how the channel grows and develops and how your projects end up working out. And, uh, you know, seeing that more robust uh, Fortnite clone, that'd be super cool to see and that sort of thing. Are there any other uh, sort of like game related or other related projects that you've been that you've been working on or been thinking about wanting to experiment with related to serverless or not that you maybe are looking to do in 2020 as well? Yep, definitely want to keep exploring AWS. A uh, big thing is so with GameLift specifically, I know what I did is I mainly use like the GameLift fleets, but I know now you can kind of like get your own collection of EC2 instances like outside of GameLift, but apply kind of like that same scaling logic from GameLift onto what's called a game server group as opposed to a fleet in GameLift. 
as well as like kind of I want to look into WebSocket APIs and API Gateway because I know Unreal Engine has support for that as well. And in terms of outside of AWS, I want to look into, you know, the other players, like I said, PlayFab and Microsoft Azure and then Google Cloud because like a lot of their game solution stuff is now out of beta. So that's pretty interesting. And then, of course, just other game engines in general. So I know Unity is still a big one, even though that is still going to be kind of scary because their multiplayer stuff, the quote unquote dots package is what they call it, is still heavily in preview. But there's, of course, now Godot is getting bigger. So I kind of want to visit just all of this other stuff. Oh, fantastic. All those things sound super, super interesting. You know, getting to watch your channel a bit more recently, it sort of inspired me to start thinking about like, oh, I wonder if I should start another game project again and, you know, see what I can build in my spare time because it's just like so fun just to play around and make some stuff and just get to be super creative. And that's one of the one of the biggest things I love is like, you know, for me, when I'm making games, it's like, you know, anything I can imagine is potentially possible. And, you know, it gives me a good excuse to learn new technologies as well. So what's not to love? No, you definitely should. I mean, what what kind of game would you like to make? Oh, gosh. You know, I'd have to go back in, think a bit. I think I had some old designs for like a, some sort of RPG thing. I used to run like a very regular D&D group for like over a year. And so I was always thinking about like interesting fantasy elements and sort of incorporating, you know, interesting scenarios that came up in that way. But I've been getting more into card games recently. And so something like that is, you know, also on my mind, that could be a direction I would go. Yeah, card game would definitely easier in terms of rpg there's i know a youtuber named sabre dart studios who i was introduced to by one of my discord server users and he has like this long long series that's literally been running like the span of multiple years like three plus years um where he just constantly works on this big rpg game while teaching stuff and so if anyone's interested in like learning more of like how to implement specific gameplay mechanics that would be a channel to follow. Although now there's so many new channels in the Unreal Engine space, it's kind of hard to keep track. Totally. Do you have a, I mean, I'm sure you can send us some info, info later, but any channels off the top of your head that if people are interested in sort of like game design, game development, and uh, maybe even more stuff around using serverless or new technologies with these games, like channels that you could think of off the top of your head. And then we can also put them in the show notes too. Hmm, serverless with game and game development. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one because most of the people, at least in the Unreal space, Unity has more people who focus more on multiplayer game development, at least the back end side of it, the non-gameplay side of it. But in the Unreal space, a lot of people in the at least on the education side focus more on the gameplay mechanic elements. So like for example, you know, how to how to make a guy shoot a weapon, stuff like that. So yeah, I definitely can't think of one off the top of my head. Sure, sure. No worries. That's totally fine. Is there any other interesting things that you want to sort of like add or talk about before we head towards the end? I'm just curious. I don't know how long the podcast has been running or how many guests have that you guys have had, but have you guys had anyone from the healthcare space and if they've like kind of talked about their experiences with serverless? We haven't. I would totally love to have someone on the podcast regarding in the healthcare space and that sort of thing. I also run a podcast called Serverless Economics, and 
right now it's sort of been mostly Ryan and I going through like AWS case studies around like why serverless sort of like was a good choice for them. But I'd love to transition either. I'd love to also just talk to more people in person about like their experience using serverless in certain industries and what worked well, what didn't, what they would like to improve and and how they want to see it applied more to their industry. So no, but I would definitely love to have someone on to talk about that. No, that that's amazing. That like that's amazing that you love to talk with people from different backgrounds and how they apply service. But I was just gonna say if you do ever have a healthcare guest, I would totally be interested in listening to it. Although, I mean, if you ever need an extra host, I mean, you know, I'm always free because I'm always interested because I work my day job is in healthcare and I work primarily with provider data. So I would definitely, definitely be interested in seeing that. Cool. That's really good. That's really good to know. I think in um in twenty twenty one, one of our goals overall with the uh with our two podcasts is to definitely sort of shift gears a bit with serverless economics and just reach out to a bunch of people who are, you know, just like in the weeds doing it and just get their experiences running it. We have a friend, Darius, who's in the who is in Eastern Europe and he has a a consulting firm, mostly doing Azure stuff. And uh, he maybe has some healthcare clients and it can speak to that a little bit. But, you know, I'd love to get like the director of tech from some, uh, you know, healthcare firm that, that would be interested in talking about. This is what serverless was like. And this is what worked well. This is what I like. This is what I didn't. Because for me, those things are just super fascinating to hear about. And I'm not too sure if you guys are already part of this program. And also for anyone listening, if you guys work extensively with AWS and helping a lot of people, I would totally recommend anyone to in that space to like just apply to the AWS Community Builders Program. You guys will meet a ton of people from a ton of different backgrounds that are all interested in serverless and you know teaching other people about it and who are totally willing to come on here or anywhere to just talk with anyone about really anything. So totally would recommend that. But yeah, don't know if you guys are a part of that AWS Community Builders Program. We just got uh, we just got involved. Ryan was got involved. Uh, I don't know whatever the last round was. I was accepted as one, and then and then a number of people on our team. I think at Serverless Guru, we at least have like thirteen or fifteen different people who are AWS community builders, and we just uh, we've been hiring like crazy recently. So uh, we just you know found found a couple more to add to the our own little Serverless Guru community, which has been pretty fun. But that's a good idea. I need to reach out to the people in the in the Slack and be like, Hey, I'm really interested in talking to people involved in this and have experience like that. That definitely would be a good, good resource. Yeah, they would, they would totally be willing to do it. And I, I watched like, I think the last podcast. So I, again, if you just show them one of these podcasts, they'd totally be willing to do it. No question. Fantastic. That's good to know. And certainly congratulations on being an AWS community builder yourself. That is uh, you know, you definitely hit the, hit all the requirements. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Same same to you guys. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate you being on today and getting us to pick your brain a bit about your journey with FlopRAM and serverless, what it means to you know build a game using AWS services and serverless technology and uh, get your thoughts on you know where the gaming industry is sort of going and how it can utilize serverless. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. You're super welcome. And I also have to give a thanks to, you know, all the listeners who are tuning into the podcast. I super appreciate this. And, you know, it is now uh, heading out to the end of the year. So I hope everyone gets to wrap up their year. All's well. And uh, we'll be seeing you later. Take care. Take care.